Special thanks to Brian Gondek, Lisa Shaw, and Ed for becoming our newest Southpaw supporters and helping to make this project possible. The global pandemic has hit our day jobs hard. This is now our full-time jobs. If you want great content and can afford a few extra bucks, consider becoming a Southpaw supporter on Patreon. If you want to show everyone else your solidarity, we now have an online store full of Southpaw swag. You can find links to both our store and our Patreon at southpawpod.com. When it comes to left media, we cannot exist without your support. This is Sam. This is Paul. And this is Fight Study. Although the heavyweights might have turned in a so-so main event for UFC on ESPN, Blades vs. Volkov, the co-main delivered an instant classic that had fans wishing their placements had been switched. Josh Emmett defeated Shane Burgos by unanimous decision in a fight-of-the-year contender, and it seems like the featherweights can do no wrong. Seriously, take a look at the top 15 ranking and you'll see that you can mix and match anyone in there and get some great competitive matchups. Heading into this fight, Emmett and Burgos were both ranked in the top 10 and had mini win streaks going on. Although the heavyweights got to go on last, everyone knew that the people's main event was Emmett versus Burgos, and they did not disappoint. Before we do a fight breakdown, it's important to know what kind of fighter both Emmett and Burgos are. Fighting out of Team Alpha Male, Emmett is part of a proud tradition of wrestlers turned strikers that the Sacramento team is famous for churning out. After getting knocked out by Jeremy Stevens two years ago, Emmett has been on a mission to not only avenge that loss, but to prove himself as a next contender at 145 pounds. If you've never seen him striking, imagine a better Uriah Faber that can stand switch pretty well and incorporate more lateral movement. Just like Faber, his best weapon is his right hand. Unlike Faber, instead of relying purely on swinging his overhand right, hoping to catch his opponents, Emmett does a better job of setting them up. Emmett's overhand right comes usually after setting them up with a few non-committal jabs before slipping deep to his left side to throw with extra power. This is how he was able to knock out Michael Johnson late in the third round despite being down on all the scorecards. He also dropped Jeremy Stevens in the first round of their fight with a counter right straight, although he ended up getting knocked out in the third round. This doesn't mean his left hand is without power. Emmett dropped Mursad Bektik with a stiff lead jab and knocked out Ricardo Lamas with a left hook. Clearly, this is a guy with legitimate power in his hands and not afraid to throw down. Thank goodness he got an opponent that was willing to indulge him. At first glance, Shane Burgos looks like a man that doesn't belong at featherweight. Although his 5'11 frame is definitely on the taller side, his absurd 76-inch reach makes him a nightmare for the rest of the division. 
Zabit Magomedsharipov is the tallest featherweight at 6'2", but his reach is 73 inches. Despite having such an advantage, Burgos makes his living fighting on the inside. It might seem odd for a fighter of Burgos' size and build to commit to such a style, but he somehow makes it work. Burgos' main objective is to press forward and get his opponents to lash out at him with jabs and straights that he can slip, both towards the inside and outside, and counter with hooks and uppercuts. If this sounds familiar, it's because it was a style favored by former boxing champions Joshua Clotty, Ricky Hatton, and another older obscure boxer by the name of Mike Tyson. If you need an MMA example, think of Ross Pearson before all the damage he took started catching up to him. Against Cub Swanson, Burgos was catching him over and over again with the right uppercut whenever Swanson stepped in and hammered the body whenever possible. Speaking of which, Burgos might be one of the best body punchers at featherweight, and you see this in the exhausted looks in the faces of his opponents, despite Burgos being the one that cuts massive amounts of weight to make the 146-pound limit. It's clear that both Burgos and Emmett felt that they had the advantage on the feet, and there was only one way to find out who was correct. From the moment the fight started, this almost seemed like a mismatch, size-wise. Burgos towered over Emmett and looked like a welterweight in there. Burgos started his usual forward movement, followed by lots of front kicks, low kicks, and calf kicks. Undeterred, Emmett was aided greatly by Burgos moving and walking into several overhand rights and straights. This just goes to show that even if you have a significant size and reach advantage, if your style doesn't utilize it effectively, it becomes a moot point. Despite Emmett scoring with multiple haymakers and kicks of his own, Burgos hurt Emmett with knees and body shots that snuck through his defense. Of note was Burgos' commitment to the inside low kick and calf kicks, as this was clearly bothering Emmett and kept him from effectively moving laterally. Although it would be easy to attribute this entirely to the striking of Burgos, replays show that it seemed that a hyperextension suffered in the first minute was the biggest factor in what seemed to cause Emmett to slow down. Nonetheless, the fight went on and Emmett had to figure a way to work around his new handicap. In round two, Burgos went back to doing what seemed to be a winning formula, throwing low kicks and jabbing up Emmett while mixing in some knees and right straights. It was clear by now that Emmett's movement was hampered and his lead leg was giving him trouble. Burgos doesn't always jab, but when he does, he can definitely hurt his opponents. Godofredo Pepe was another former opponent of Burgos that swung with hooks and overhands, and Burgos overcame Pepe by keeping him at the end of a nice stiff jab for rounds 2 and 3. Against Emmett, Burgos used some of the same strategy to success, and it was harder for the shorter fighter to retaliate during these exchanges. However, Emmett wasn't without his moments. Since the majority of his side-to-side movements were hampered, Emmett relied on backing up towards the fence to lure Burgos forward, where he can meet him with overhand rights and straights. This time, Emmett was more liberal with his right-hand leads, a favorite of Fedor Emelianenko and Henry Cejudo, and threw up high kicks from his lead side to keep Burgos from teeing off, keeping the fight competitive. Interestingly enough, Emmett also had a lot of success when he threw jabs in rapid succession to keep Burgos from lunging forward 
and this was the same blueprint that Calvin Cater used in his fight against Burgos. The jabs don't have to be powerful, but by throwing them from the elbow with no tell from his hips and shoulder, Burgos couldn't get a read on Emmett and walked in on a couple of them before getting hit with the follow-up right straight. Depending on how you scored it, you could make a case for either fighter being up 2-0 or tied at one round apiece. The third round changed all that. A note to our loyal listeners. If you love the show, please support us and help us get paid for our labor by joining Team Southpaw on Patreon. By becoming a member, you'll get access to bonus content like exclusive articles, fight previews, bonus episodes, transcripts of fight studies, and access to our private chat group on Discord. But more importantly, you'll help us supplement the cost of the show, the incredible time and energy Sam and I put into making the show, and you'll be giving us some breathing room not only to juggle Southpaw with our day jobs, but also expand Southpaw into other areas. Show your Southpaw solidarity by supporting us at patreon.com slash southpawpod. Early on, Emmett moved around and switched stances briefly. And from Southpaw, he dropped his weight before throwing a short left cross and knocked down Burgos. Just like in the Mursad Bektik fight, it was his left punch that knocked down his opponent. Burgos made his way back to his feet, and the fight continued. An inside low kick unfortunately stops the action when it gets a little bit too low, but it doesn't stop the striking when the fight restarts. Knowing that the knockdown cost him, Burgos marches forward and eats the lead overhand right over and over again. While trying to feint with his shoulders and hips squared up, Burgos gets hit with an overhand left, making it the second time he's dropped from that side. I mentioned earlier that Emmett is a competent stance switcher with power in his left hand, and Burgos' constant forward movement cost him in this fight. Burgos isn't the best ring cutter, and his forward movements have caused him to get hit more often than he should. Now on his back with Emmett landing ground and pound, Burgos is trying to survive and eventually kicked Emmett off him by pushing his feet off Emmett's hips. Burgos manages to survive, but again, his pressure-heavy style just feeds into Emmett's overhands and left hooks, racking up more points for Emmett. When the decision is read by Bruce Buffer, it's clear that Emmett has secured victory, although the scorecards themselves aren't clean across the board. With this victory, Emmett has three impressive victories in a row, two finishes, and one very exciting decision win. Although he's on a roll, he still lacks a victory over a former champion or someone in the top five to really cement himself as next in line for a title shot. A fight against the number 5th ranked Yair Rodriguez could give the push that both fighters need to become the next challenger for the belt. Of course, Emmett will probably have to take some time off to see how the rematch between Volkanovski and Holloway plays out, as well as rehabbing the injury to his knee. For Burgos, this was another tough test against someone in the top 10, his toughest since Calvin Cater. His forward movement while slipping makes for exciting fights, but it does make himself more hittable in the process. Combined with his less than stellar ring cutting ability, the darting Emmett was going to be a tougher matchup than what the odds makers predicted. Burgos was a minus 162 favorite, over the plus 130 Emmett. 
He's still an exciting prospect and does get better from fight to fight. But he might have to go back to the drawing board and learn to utilize his jab and work on trying to get opponents to come to him, a la Israel Adesanya. Nick Lentz might be a good opponent for him to try and rebound against and see if his style can be as effective moving backwards as it is forward. One last note, Austin Hubbard versus Max Roscoff. We've seen countless times when a fighter hints that they're having trouble with the fight or if they're battling an injury that they don't think they can overcome to win. It's all but an outright plea for their corner to read between the lines and either ask if they want to stop the fight or straight up call it off. Fighting itself is tough enough as it is, and the athletes involved are often too tough for their own good. This is why they have trainers and coaches who are supposed to look out for their best interests and most importantly, their safety. It's bad enough when you have fighters like Raquel Pennington and Anthony Smith telling their corners that they're done only to be sent out for more punishment. Roscoff told his corner nine times that he was done. Have you ever said something nine times only for your voice to be ignored? We're not talking about repeating your order at Starbucks. This is a fighter who is basically begging with his coach that he can no longer continue. Instead of acknowledging him, Roscoff's coach, Robert Drysdale, ignores the constant, call it, please, and instead tries to motivate him to push past his exhaustion. Now, it could very well be that Drysdale has seen Roscoff come back from worse and win, or that Roscoff is a type to need tough love more so than others. But as a human being with functioning ears, listen again to the 50-second exchange between fighter and coach. Right, we got this, champ. Listen, listen. Huh? You're going to beat this guy, Max. We got this. You're going to beat this guy. Listen, we got No, listen. No, we got this, Max. Okay, stop it. Stop it. We got this. Okay, breathe. Okay, catch your breath. We're going to beat this guy. Keep it on your feet. You're going to clinch. No, call it. Call it. You sure you're going to lose, Max? Yeah. We got this, Max. No, we got this, Max. You're a champion. I don't have it. You're a champion. Stop it. I don't have it. Stop it. You're a champion. Champion. We're gonna accomplish, finish this round on top of him and this decision, okay? Get on top of him, out wrestle him. We got this. Huh? You want to fight or not? Roscoff clearly stated, with no hesitation, I don't want to do this anymore. How can you not be confused as to what he wants his corner to do? If you're just reading the results, the official decision is written as TKO, retirement. It doesn't capture the gravity of the situation. Drysdale not only refused to stop the fight, he told Roscoff to clinch and end the fight with him on top. This wasn't a back-and-forth battle like the Emmett versus Burgos matchup. Hubbard was clearly winning the fight, with all judges scoring the second round 10-8 for him. Unless an exhausted Roscoff had some crazy submission or one-punch KO power that he was hiding the entire fight, he was only going to go out there to absorb more damage. So who stopped the fight? A Nevada State Athletic Commission inspector. Once Roscoff refused to move from his stool, he asked him directly if he wanted to continue, and he said emphatically, no. The fight was over, 
but it seemed like no lessons were learned. Drysdale was adamant that he did nothing wrong and that Roscoff just needed a mental push. Roscoff's manager, Brian Butler, blamed the pre-existing turf toe injury combined with fatigue as the reason why he couldn't continue. Guess what's missing in all this? An actual apology and acknowledgement that they might be in the wrong. Roscoff took this fight on extremely short notice and he was making his UFC debut. This wasn't for the world title or a dream match against a top contender. There was no point in sending him back out there to prove what a badass he is. There's a recent MMA editorial on BloodyElbow.com by Tim Bissell called The Mitchell Paradox. It's an eight-part series that takes an uncomfortably close look at the career of David Mitchell, a former UFC fighter and veteran of the NorCal fighting circuit. The entire editorial is worth your time, but it shows the ugly side of the fight business. These athletes are human beings with bodies that take damage like yours and mine. They aren't immune to long-term brain damage or permanent injuries to their nervous systems. Fighters go through the kind of physical and mental trauma that will make NFL players feel bad for them. With all this stacked against them, don't they deserve to have trainers and coaches with their safety in mind? Like Roscoff, David Mitchell had promising talent and a head coach that was a jiu-jitsu whiz. He started by dominating the local circuit before getting his shot at the UFC. I won't spoil the rest of the story, but his journey is heartbreaking and has shades of Roscoff in there. I don't know what the future holds for Roscoff, but I do know that unless the culture of MMA changes, we will be seeing a death in the UFC sooner than later. The incentives of MMA, and specifically the UFC, makes it so that entertainment and violence are placed above technique and longevity. So, one thing that I wanted to talk to you guys about was uh, the fights this season have been less than what we expected. You know, there hasn't been one finish. Guys were getting knocked dead left and right getting into the house. And then they just sort of, you know, think the best fight so far of the season is you two by far. By far. I know that Roy has this belief that let's do just enough to win and that'll be good enough. But I can tell you this, one guy is going to win. So your coaches are here to, uh, to guide you, mentor you, teach you new things. But I'm here to tell you what you need to do to get into the UFC. And you need to be exciting. You guys need to start fighting, man. And, and let me tell you what, the judges aren't doing you any favors either. And, you know, no hard feelings, but I don't think you won your fight. I think you lost two rounds to one. You guys got to start fighting, man. And I'm telling you right now, with what I've seen so far, you guys won't make the finale. So from here on out, it's up to you. Have a great day. These guys thought that they were going to fight in the finale no matter what. But everybody better wake up, man, and, and start acting like you want to win some fights and be here. Or you won't be. Why compete in a technically proficient manner when it won't earn you extra money and you'll always be at risk of getting cut? If fighters have financial reasons to swing wildly just so they could get a chance to win an extra 50k bonus, you bet your ass they'll start throwing haymakers exclusively to try and get that money. 
fighters have gone from thanking their coaches and family to begging Dana White for a post-fight bonus. Can you imagine any other professional sport where the athlete has to ask for money from the league president after a match? Not only would that be embarrassing, you'd be hard-pressed to call it a real sport. I don't have the answers to fixing this kind of behavior. And even if one comes along, it won't change things overnight. All I can ask from you, the educated fans, is to try and understand where fighters are coming from and realize when they say they're done for the night, it doesn't make them any less tough. We should be allowed to fail freely and without judgment. After all, it's in losses where we can make the greatest improvements. Please don't fall into the propaganda machine of how only quote-unquote real fighters will push through all their pain and find a way to win. Sometimes, saying no is the toughest thing you can do. For more on this topic, check out episode 52, The Hidden Ethics of Combat Sports, and episode 56, The Invisible Hand of MMA Face Punching. Now that's the show. If you enjoyed this episode and find this type of independent media worthwhile, please consider supporting the show on Patreon. We have a lot more episodes like this one in the works, but need your financial support to keep the show running. Even a few dollars a month goes a long way. No one does what we do, and it's all being funded by you, the listener. In return for supporting us, you'll gain access to lots of bonus content and along with our private Discord chat. Even if you can't support us, there's a lot of free bonus content there as well. We also have an online store if you want to show your Southpaw solidarity by wearing our swag. You can find all pertinent links at southpawpod.com. And if you can't afford to support the show and still want to help, please leave us a five-star review wherever you listen. This makes it easier for others to find us. And don't forget to share your favorite episodes or the podcast itself on social media. Tell your friends. Until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.